0: Well, oh, good evening. It's a wonderful Sunday night crowd. Churches all over the United States are canceling their Sunday night service. I'm glad to see how you vote tonight. It's good to see you all. If you would take, please take your Bible and open to the book of Second Timothy, the book of Second Timothy in your Bibles, and just a couple of verses there, and then we're gonna we're gonna go to a couple of portions of Scripture tonight. But we'll start in Second Timothy chapter four. Second Timothy chapter four. It's been such a delight and a joy to be with you and to get to know you. To have many different conversations all over the building with different ones of you. And uh, it's, just, it's just been a joy. I, I love the ministry that God's called me to. I'm humbled by it. I'm excited by it. I, I, just, I just People ask me from time to time, Pastor, they say, When are you ever going to settle down and pastor a church? And that, that question is interesting to me because it implies that I'm a wild, crazy man. Um, and so I'm, I i do not know how to answer it. The truth of the matter is I have a, I, I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do right now. And what a joy it is to be in God's will. There's no better place to be. If you're not in God's will, the Bible says, uh, in my presence is fullness of joy. In the presence of God is fullness of joy at his right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. The world is seeking pleasure in all kinds of places, But I have found the will of God to be good, acceptable, and perfect. If you surrender to it and you do it, you're going to find the same thing. Well, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Would you stand with me, please, if you're able to? 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'd like us to look at two verses in this passage of Scripture. Note, first of all, please, verse 6. The Word of God says, For I am now ready to be offered and The time of my departure is at hand. Drop your attention down to verse 11, please. The Bible says, Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Help us, our Father. We need your help tonight. And Lord, you've met with us so far. We thank you for that. Would you do so again would you take the Word of God and apply it to our hearts and cause us to know exactly what you would have us to do in light of its truth and in light of its teachings? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You may be seated. The book of 2 Timothy is a powerful book because it is, it is some of the last written words that we have from the Apostle Paul. If you've been saved for a while, you understand that the Apostle Paul is the human writer for the majority of our New Testament Scriptures. But when we come to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, notice the phrasing that he uses. He says, for I am now ready to be offered. This is figurative language. It uh, harks back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. If you were to look at the Old Testament sacrifices, you would be hard pressed to find an Old Testament sacrifice that was not killed at the altar. Now, you might find some, but for the most part, every Old Testament sacrifice that was an animal was slain at the altar and its blood was used in the worship of God in the Jewish system. And so it is to that system that Paul alludes when he says, I am now ready to be offered, just as if I were a sacrificial lamb, just as if I were a sacrificial bullock, or perhaps a turtle dove, and they stand there silently before that altar, ready to have their life, taken in the worship of God, so I personally am ready to have my life taken in the service of my God. Now notice he gives a parallel phrase, verse 6, he says, the time of my departure is at hand. Lord willing, at uh, around after 5 o'clock sometime, I will be at the Flint airport and there will be a time when they will say, we are departing the gate, all right? Now, what they're going to say to me and what the Apostle Paul was saying are two totally different things. I'm going to get on an airplane, and I'm going to fly back to Memphis, Tennessee. That's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He says, I'm fixing to leave this life, and I'm fixing to head to the next one. All right? You people understand Southern. You assured me of that today. So we're going to use it freely tonight in the message, okay? But that's what he's saying. In other words, it's not going to be long before I'm dead. And in here, in the words of a man who knows he's about to die... I find it fascinating what he says concerning a certain man in verse 11. The Bible says, only Luke is with me. Let me just pause and say, thank God for faithful men. The Bible says it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. God doesn't look at your talent or mine. He doesn't look at your ability or mine. But He does check the faithfulness category when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ. You're going to find that through thick and thin, Luke was with the Apostle Paul every step of the way. You're going to find that every every trial that he endured, Luke was right there with him. And now here is the Apostle about to die. He knows he's about to die. But thank God he can say, Luke, the man who's been with me all this time is with me still. But now I want you to look at this next man. The Bible says, take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. We may understand tonight, but in case we have forgotten, this represents a 180 degree turnaround in the Apostle Paul's attitude toward this gentleman by the name of Mark. You say, Brother Paul, what do you mean? Well, let's go back to the book of Acts and let's see the relationship between Mark and the Apostle Paul. Now, we're going to find in the New Testament, there are actually two names for this one gentleman. One name is John, the other name is Mark. I'll show you how we know that it's the same person throughout the course of the message. But notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, please. We're going to notice a verse of Scripture. Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas embark upon the ministry to which God has called them. They go to the country of Cyprus and minister there. God blesses the ministry, and now they're done in Cyprus. They're going to return to Asia Minor, what is now the country of Turkey. Notice what the Word of God says in verse 13. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. They've left Cyprus. They're now back in Asia Minor. And the Bible says, John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So in the very beginning of the journey, it was Paul, it was Barnabas, and it was John, this fellow named John. We'll see he's he's also called Mark. We'll see that in a bit. But the, the Bible says, for some reason, when they returned to the mainland, John made a decision... I'm going back to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was where he was from. It happened to be where his mother lived. And so, I've heard southern preachers say, Well, he probably missed his mama's pecan pie. And so he headed back home. Now... I've heard other preachers say, Mr. Mama's banana pudding, and so he headed back home. Now, I can understand that. I've had very excellent pecan pie, and uh, it's worth going home for, amen. I've had very good banana pudding. I personally believe that the Greek tells us that it will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, amen. But uh, the truth of the matter is, the Bible doesn't tell us why John went back home. In, not in this verse of scripture. It just tells us he went back home and he departed from them. Now, we go over to Acts chapter 15. We're going to see more about what the Apostle Paul thought of John's motives. All right? We're not told John's motives in Acts 13, but in Acts 15, we do encounter a little bit of the Apostle Paul's attitude toward the thing. Now, Acts chapter 15, the majority of the chapter, is the story of the council of Jerusalem. Many Gentiles have been born again. What is their relationship to be to the old? Old Testament law, the elders met in Jerusalem, and they decided upon that. They decided we couldn't keep the Old Testament law, and we don't think the Gentiles will keep it either, but we'll pick out a couple salient points, and we'll ask the Gentiles to abide by that, and uh, we believe that through the grace of God, they're going to be saved just like we are. Thank God for that. But after the council was done, the Bible says in verse 36, Acts chapter 15 and verse 36, notice please, and some days after... Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas, underline this word now, determined. Strong word, important word. Barnabas determined to take with them John whose surname was Mark. That's how we know John and Mark refer to the same person, okay? Barnabas determined to take this fellow with them, verse 38. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. So here we have verse 37. Here's the man Barnabas. Barnabas says, you know what? It's a good idea. We need to encourage these people in these churches. Let's take John Mark with us. On the other side, in verse 38, we have the Apostle Paul. He says, no, that's not a good idea. I don't want to take John with us. Why don't you want to take John? Well, here we have Paul's idea of why John Mark left. Notice it again, verse 38. The Bible says he departed with them from Pamphylia. And here's Paul's commentary. He went not with them to the work. Now, I want you to make no mistake about it. The ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a ministry of work. 1 Peter 3 and verse or First Timothy, excuse me, 3 and verse 1. If any man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good, you say it. work. That's right. Don't you ever come to your pastor and say, "Wow, it must be nice being a preacher. All you got to do is work one and a half days a week." I suppose you can say that as long as he knows you're joking, but understand this, there that you there's probably no one in this room that could trade schedules with your pastor. The man is on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week for all his life, excepting any vacation that he may take every now and again. And I'm going to tell you something. You better thank God for the God-called shepherd that he has put in this place. John Mark was uh, exposed to the work of the ministry and according to the way the apostle Paul saw things he decided man this is just too hard I mean I'm going against uh, against Bar Jesus this man elements the sorcerer that's scary that's hard I don't know what's going on this is not what I signed up for you guys are back on the mainland now I'm out of here I'm going back to Jerusalem that's it And the Apostle Paul said, look, if you want to take a lazy man, you go ahead. But I'm not taking a lazy man with me. The ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ is hard work. Now, here we have on the one side, we have Barnabas. He's determined to take this fellow with him. Here we have on the other side, Paul, who says, no, we're not taking this guy with him. Now, I don't know about you, but as I see verses 37 and verse 38 together, it's it's fixing to get on. I mean, you got two two Baptist preachers that don't see eye to eye on this thing. It's going to be a Baptist brouhaha here pretty soon. And that's exactly what happened. Notice what the Bible says, verse 39. Notice what the Scripture says, Acts 15 and verse 39, And the contention, uh-oh, the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark because he was determined to take him. And he took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, Silas being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia confirming the churches. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is the last time uh, until 2 Timothy chapter 4 that we read of Paul and John Mark in the same context of the word of God. And when we read about them here, Paul said, Listen, I am so adamant that he not go with us, that I will not be your ministry partner if you're going to take him along. Wow. And yet... All these years later, here is the Apostle Paul about to die, and he makes a striking statement. Take Mark and bring him with thee, Timothy, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. I'm going to tell you, that just astounds me on many levels, but it tells me that God did a work in John Mark's heart. Who made the difference in John Mark? Oh, we could say, well, certainly God made the difference in John Mark, and we would be right. But I would have you to remember this evening that God uses human instruments. And what human instruments, so far as we can tell, did God use to make a difference in John Mark? I would submit it was a man by the name of Barnabas. And I would like us to look at the man Barnabas this evening. Would you go back in your Bible to Acts chapter 4? We're going to remain in the book of Acts for the remainder of the message. But let's let's look at Acts chapter 4. Here was a man that because of his laziness, in the eyes of the Apostle Paul at least, because of his laziness, Paul said, I will not take this man with me. But at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul changes 180 degrees. He said, listen, now bring him on because he's profitable for me, for the, to me for the ministry. What happened in this man's life? I submit to you that he came into contact with a man who made an investment in the lives of people everywhere he went. I want to preach to you a message that I have entitled the greatest investment, the greatest investment. People tell me that uh, I'm over the age of 40 and they would have me know that if I'm going to have a healthy retirement, I need a million dollars in my retirement account. That's what I'm told. I don't know anybody who's retired who has a million dollars. My grandpa told me that they call these the golden years because if you don't have a lot of gold, you're not going to make it through these years. That's what he told me. And, uh, I I don't know anybody that has a million dollars for retirement, but boy, it seems like on every hand people are saying, you must invest, you must invest, you must invest your money. And I'm trying to look to the future certainly, but I'm not going to have a million dollars laid up. As a matter of fact, my retirement's out of this world. Amen. It's on the other side. But let me tell you, this man Barnabas was always investing in something that is that will last, and that is he was investing in people. And I'd like to look at his life tonight from the book of Acts, and I'd like us to see some things about this man Barnabas. Let me tell you something. I am burdened. I am burdened for people in our churches in 2018. Because if we're not careful, we can get to the place where the only people that we really invest in and the only people that we really know are those people in church and the Christian school, and then that's it. But I want to tell you, if the United States of America is to be reached, it will be because God's people make a conscious, constant investment in the lives of others. So I want us to look at this man Barnabas. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, maybe I didn't tell you the chapter. Acts chapter 4, let's look at what the Bible says in verse 33. Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. The Scripture says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Now, let me just stop and say, the Bible is not in this passage teaching socialism. All right? The Bible, as a matter of fact, makes a big deal about private ownership of property. You say, Brother Paul, where does it say that? When the When God said, Thou shalt not steal... That's private ownership of property. And that makes it a sin to violate the ownership of that property. The Bible's not teaching socialism. If you want more details, see your pastor. He'll be glad to give them to you. All right, now let's go on. The Bible says in verse 36, And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas. Now, if I were to stand up and give you and and say, I'm going to preach a message on Joseph, you would would nudge your wife and say, Did he say Joseph? Joseph. Or did he say Joseph? And who is this Joseph character? I don't know who he's talking about. I've been in church all my life. I don't know who Joseph is. Nobody would recognize him by his name. That's the name his parents gave him. We all know him by his nickname. The Bible says, "Who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas." What does Barnabas mean? Well, it's interpreted, which, it being interpreted, is the son of consolation this man was so identified by the fact that he was an encourager that they called they changed his name from what had been given to him by his parents to their this new name that means the person who is known for his encouragement I don't know about you but I want to be known as an encouraging person I want to be known as a person who through the power of the Spirit of God goes around and lifts people up and encourages them and, uh, and gives them the strength and the idea that through the power of God I can go on and serve Him. This, that's the way Barnabas was. Notice what it says. He was a Levite, according to verse 36, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. As we look at the life of Barnabas here in the book of Acts, we're going to note three sacrifices that Barnabas made in order to make an investment in the lives of people. At this time, there were a great many of Jews that had trusted Christ as Savior. Many of them were from out of town. Uh, Possibly some of them did not go back to their homes. They stayed there in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost. There was tremendous need. And so, Barnabas realized that there was a tremendous need. He was so intent on being an encouragement to others that he was, as he was sitting around one day, he realized, Hey, I've got some land. Now, I don't know where Barnabas' land was. Maybe his land was on the island of Cyprus. That's where he was from. If his land was on the island of Cyprus it was probably high dollar land. Now I don't know about I don't know about islands in Lake Michigan, but islands off of the Gulf of, in the Gulf of Mexico and islands in the Atlantic Ocean are high dollar real estate. I think they're probably high dollar real estate just about wherever you go. This man owned property on the island of Cyprus, possibly. But wherever it was, the Bible says he made a momentous decision. He could have said, well, I'm going to hoard this for my nest egg so that when I get old and unable to work, I'm going to have something to fall back on. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But I'm saying that when Barnabas looked at the possibility of hanging on to this land and the opportunity to have a ministry in the lives of people, he immediately made a sacrifice and he said, I'm going to liquidate my land so I can be an encouragement in the lives of other people. I say to you, number one, Barnabas made a sacrifice of substance. He made a sacrifice of substance, that is, his material possessions. He was willing to sacrifice what God had given him so that he could be an encouragement and a blessing to other people. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Whenever I preach this in the United States of America in the 21st century, there are immediately some caveats that I must give. Because there is a whole subculture of Americana that when they realize that you and I are professing Christians, they immediately think of us by three letters. A-T-M. That is, they come to you and to me and they say, well, he's a Christian. He'll have pity on me if I just tell him some lying, falsified sob story. They're Christians. They ought to help me along. Now, I promise you that at least every week, well, I'm going to guess at least every week, somebody calls the church office asking for money for something. And usually, if it's if it's like most churches that I'm in, it's accompanied by some sob story. I don't know what it is about me personally. Maybe it's because I pull this large trailer down the road, and they see me get out of the truck, and they say, Ah, he's got a 41-foot trailer and a one-ton truck. He must have a lot of money. I've never read that verse in the Proverbs that says, So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth. I never read that. But anyway, they come at me all the time. I don't know if somebody's painting a target on me, but they just come at me all the time. And this is what it is. Inevitably, someone has died. They always read off the same script. I don't know who wrote this script, but they always read off the same script. Oh, somebody died in the family, and I'm trying to get there to this funeral, and I don't have any money. Would you help us? Now, I don't know about you, but I, I just get the idea that most of those people are lying. But there's this nagging thing in the back of my mind. Maybe, just maybe, one time, they're not lying. And maybe just one time, they're not lying. If I go to them and help them, maybe I can give them the gospel. That's what goes through my mind. But I don't give people money. There's one reason. I don't carry cash on me. Okay? I just don't. And I'm sure not going to give them my bank card. I'm not going to do that. I'm thinking of a place outside of Knoxville, Tennessee where we had pulled the trailer in. I had to get some diesel fuel. And so I pulled in there and the, there was this lady there and she, she began to go into the sob story. I thought she was lying to me, but I thought, well... Maybe if I help her, who knows? I can give her the gospel. I don't, I don't know where this will lead. But uh, she said to me, she said, yeah, there's a funeral in the family, and uh, my family is is with us, but we're out of gas, and we're we can you give us just a couple bucks for gas? I said, no, I won't give you any money, but I'll be glad to put some gas in your Cadillac Escalade there. <laughs> I, it, it could have been a GMC version, but it was one of those, all right? It was one of those high-dollar General Motors uh, SUVs. And so... And so I, I went over and I paid for the fuel and put it. And I I, I was very surprised when it would only hold twelve dollars of gasoline. I thought those large SUVs had larger tanks than that. Who knew they only held four gallons? I didn't know. I've never owned a the only only GM I ever owned broke down all the time, and I got sick of pushing it. So um, I just I just gave up on the whole thing. But anyway. Um, I saw the bumper sticker, I'd rather push a Chevy than own a Ford. I've done both, and I'm going to tell you, pushing a Chevy gets really old. Anyway, um, <clears throat> what a thing to say outside of Flint, Michigan, right? Anyway, uh, that's just been my experience. I've never owned one of these big SUVs. I, my trucks hold more fuel in the tank than just four gallons, but maybe that's all they hold. And so I put it in there. And I thought, wow, it doesn't seem like a, seems like her story maybe had some holes in it. And then, as I went to fuel and put gasoline in the in her SUV, I noticed that the children in the back were all eating. I don't know what they were eating, but every one of them was chomping down on something. I could hear the crinkle of some kind of wrapper. I mean, they they had something to eat. So there was another hole in the lady's story. And then I noticed there was a man sitting in the passenger seat. <clears throat> and I went to him and I said, sir, I said, uh, do, you, do, do, you, do you have a job? Is there some, is there some place that you all oh, know? I, I can't work. I'm disabled, you see. I thought, yeah, yeah, you and everybody else in this country. Welcome to the disabled states of America, okay? <laughs> now, there are some people that are legitimately disabled, but I am amazed. I never cease to be amazed at how disabled people can go on four-day Rocky Mountain elk hunts. That amazes me. Because I've been on Rocky Mountain Elk comes before and it took every ounce of ability that I had. Anyway, their story just didn't seem to match up. But I, I tried to witness to her and as soon as I began to tell her about the Lord Jesus Christ... She became, I mean, she, she was ready to be the next saint of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, she was just the most wonderful, upstanding Christian lady. We've all had experiences like that. I went inside to take care of something, came back out, and she was on the other side of the station still trying to bum money. I hollered out to the man. I said, sir, you can do what you want to, but I just filled her car with gas. Everybody in the vehicle has had something to eat, and I don't know. It seems like she may not be telling the truth. As soon as I said that, this fine, upstanding Christian woman began to say the most unchristian sounding things. Now, there's a lot of people out there that are that way. They're going to try to take advantage of you and me as soon as they know that we're Christians. And let me tell you the tendency that we have the tendency that we have is. Well, they're not getting a thing from me because they're lying and they're cheats and all that. A lot of them are lying. A lot of them are trying to cheat you. But I want to tell you something. It is still true that sometimes it's going to require a financial sacrifice in order to have an investment in the lives of people. There's a restaurant about an hour from where I live. It's run by Christian people. Every waiter and waitress, and the cooking staff, everybody there has been given a job because no one else will give them a job. Usually they have a a record of drug addiction or something like that. But they have come through a Christian drug uh, addiction recovery program, and this restaurant is there to give them a chance to begin to turn an honest dollar and begin to make something of themselves. And so it was, the pastor took me to this restaurant. It was excellent food and a very southern flavor and just to to everything. And as we sat there, we we were the only ones in the restaurant. And the the pastor asked the waitress, he said, Ma'am, I wonder, would you do something for us? Would you be willing to give us your testimony of how you got saved? He had already already told me, he said, Brother Paul, I don't know who's going to wait on us, but I'm going to promise you, they have a wonderful testimony. The girl told us, she said, I I grew up in West Tennessee, but I had gone to California, and uh, it just seemed like that I needed to go back home. I didn't understand why. She said, I'd become addicted to drugs and alcohol, and uh, my life was just an absolute wreck. And she said, I got halfway across America back to West Tennessee. I didn't have any money, and it seemed like God was telling me, go and talk to the janitor of this flying J." So she said, I went and talked to the janitor, of the flying J, and the janitor said, look, I, I don't have any money to give you, but he said, I'll give you some cardboard. Said, you're said, you're a pretty enough girl. Just sit out by the side of the road. Maybe some people will give you some money. She said, okay, I've got to get back to West Tennessee. She didn't know how. She started making her sign when somehow God spoke to that janitor's heart and somehow he got some money and gave her the rest of the money that she needed to get back to West Tennessee where a soul winner met her and led her to Jesus Christ. I don't know who that flying J janitor is, but I want to say publicly tonight, thank God he was willing to make a sacrifice of the money that God had given to him so that he could make a difference in somebody's life. Now, I'm going to tell you, when you start investing in the lives of people, you just better fasten your seatbelt because some of them are going to bite the hand that feeds them. That's going to happen. And every investment in a person is a risk. But I'm thankful this man was willing to take the risk. Barnabas was willing to take that risk. So much so that he sold the land that he had and he brought the entire price and laid it at the apostles' feet. I don't have time to prove it, that it was the entire price, but Acts chapter 5 tells us it was the entire price of the land. And like Barnabas, ladies and gentlemen, if we're going to have an investment in people's lives, sometimes it's going to require a sacrifice of substance. Go please to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 in the Word of God tells us the story of Saul of Tarsus. Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, the Bible says that was his life. And as for Saul in Acts chapter 8, he made havoc of the church. It was an absolutely disastrous thing. If you saw Saul coming and you happened to be a believer, you would run for the hills. You would get away as fast as you could. And yet as he was on his way to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, God reached down and saved him. There was a time when he preached for the Lord Jesus in Damascus until they sought his life and he had to be let down over the wall in a basket just to escape the liars in wait that were waiting to kill him. And after that, the the Bible says Saul made his way to Jerusalem. And there we pick up the story in Acts chapter 9 and verse 25. Excuse me, verse 26. Acts chapter 9 and verse 26. The Bible says, And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed or endeavored to join himself to the disciples. So I want you to get the picture. It's Sunday morning. The believers are meeting outdoors in Jerusalem. It's all of these believers, they've trusted Christ as Savior. They've known what it is to be persecuted. They've been persecuted by the chief priests. They've been persecuted at times by the Romans. And now the most latest round of persecution is this one Saul of Tarsus. And so now the the invitation has come and now someone begins to walk the aisle. He walks down the center aisle and as he does so, the congregation gasps row by row by row. (gasps) (gasps) <gasps> Can it be? This is Saul of Tarsus. He's he's in our church. He knows that we're believers now. What's going to happen? And then everyone is amazed when he presents himself as a candidate for membership. What is the church going to do? Different churches across the church age have done it in different ways. Many of the churches that I know in the south... Uh, are known from time to time to have a vote as to who can be the member. Can you imagine the vote on Saul of Tarsus? All those in favor of Saul joining this church by statement of faith, please let it be known by raising your right hand. Any opposed, same sign. Yeah. But wait a minute, can you blame him? Imagine a man whose cousin and his wife were in their home about to sit down to an evening meal when all of a sudden Saul of Tarsus leads a band of brigands in there. They take all of the family away and that family has disappeared. You haven't heard from your cousin and his wife and his family ever since. Imagine what that must have been like. And that story could be multiplied and told again and again and again because Saul was making havoc of the church. He was yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. That was his life before he got saved. And now he walks into the assembly at Jerusalem and he says to join himself to the church. He wants to join the church. And I want you to notice it was unsuccessful. Verse 26, the Bible says, But they were all afraid of him. I guess so. They were all afraid of him, the Bible says, and believed not that he was a disciple. You see, it was the common practice then, as it still is today, for someone to feign a profession of faith, infiltrate the church, and then wreak havoc from the inside. Several years ago, I was preaching in Indiana, and the pastor got up on a Sunday morning and said, we need to pray for Brother So-and-So, and he named a missionary that the church supported to the country of Morocco. He said, this man had to flee... Morocco at midnight last night. Because a Muslim man feigned a profession of faith, came into the church, and was baptized upon his profession of faith, he wasn't any more saved than the, as as we say in the South, he was a lost ball in tall weeds. And what was going on, he was an infiltrator, he then turned state's evidence because it's illegal to proselytize in Morocco. Morocco. And that missionary family had to flee to Spain in the middle of the night. That's what these people thought that Saul was doing. And you know what? Verse 26 is a pretty sad verse. I want you to notice the next two words in the text, though. Verse 27. Do you see them there? But Barnabas. <laughs> but Barnabas. Can one man make a difference? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he can. I want you to notice, but Barnabas, the Bible says. Notice what it says. But Barnabas took him, took Saul, and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way. Saul had seen the Lord in the way and that he, the Lord, had spoken to Saul and how he, Saul, had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Now, I want to ask you something. How did Barnabas know that Saul had met the Lord on the way to Damascus? How did he know? The only way that I can tell that he had of knowing is that Saul told him. And so now, here is this man, Saul of Tarsus, who is trying to join the church of Jerusalem. And Barnabas is about to make a tremendous sacrifice to invest in Saul of Tarsus. Are you ready? he made a sacrifice of substance, but number two, he made a sacrifice of society. He puts his arm around Saul of Tarsus and he goes to the leadership and he says, listen, this man told me that he saw the Lord in the way. That the Lord appeared to him. The Lord spoke to him. And I'm going to just tell you, gentlemen, I believe him. And he tells me that he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus at Damascus. It seems like I did hear a rumor about that. Didn't know that it was true. Of course, I didn't believe it at the time. But he says it happened. And gentlemen, I just want to go on record and say I believe him. I'm going to vouch for this man. And I think not that it's any uh, not 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 that I'm the, the authority, but I think that you ought to let him join with the assembly. Let me ask you a question: What if Barnabas had been wrong? No one in that church would have spoken to him again. What if Barnabas had been wrong? But here was a man that was so keyed in on investing in people that others would not take the time for that he was willing to risk his entire circle of friends in the church just so that he could invest in Saul of Tarsus. Wow. It's a risk. But this man was willing to make that sacrifice so that he could invest in people. Notice the outcome. The Bible says, Paul took him and brought him to the disciples. I'm in verse 27. And declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him. And how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. What was the result? Verse 28. And he was with them. Coming in in and going out at Jerusalem. Eventually, Barnabas' investment paid off. Wow. He made a sacrifice of substance. He made a sacrifice of society. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 13 one more time. Acts chapter 13, one more time, the Word of God speaks to us in verse 1 of the call of Saul and Barnabas. It says there, now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And so the Bible says they went forth. Now notice the order there. It's very specific. The Holy Ghost is speaking. He says, separate me, Barnabas, And Saul. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he's clearly the leader of this group as we begin and embark on the first missionary journey as it is often called. And so Barnabas and Saul go out. They go to Barnabas' hometown. It is probable that Barnabas at this time was depending upon leadership from the Holy Spirit. He was burdened for his home island of Cyprus. So to Cyprus they went. And there at Cyprus the Apostle Paul began to come into his own, into his own part of the ministry. Elmas the sorcerer withstands the word of God as it's being given to Sergius Paulus and the Bible says that Saul uh, was very uh, vexed in his spirit he said oh full of subtlety and mischief he said wilt thou not cease to pervert the way of the Lord and the hand of the Lord is upon thee and thou shalt be blind not seeing the sun for a season and all of a sudden this man who was also known as Bar-Jesus he screamed I can't see and they lead him forth from the court of the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus and what happened? Sergius Paulus trusted Christ. The Roman governor received Jesus Christ. We go on throughout the book of uh, Acts and in Acts chapter 13. Most of the book of Acts chapter 13 is preoccupied with a message not that Barnabas preached, but that Saul preached. We go into Acts chapter 14 and we find that now Saul has become the chief speaker. Barnabas is sort of the man in the background. He who was once singled out by the Holy Ghost as the, as the first of the duo, was now uh, he's now beginning to fade into the background. And ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you, there was a third sacrifice that Barnabas had to make in order to invest in people. Yes, he had to make the sacrifice of substance. Yes, he had to make the sacrifice of society. But I submit to you this evening, he had to make the ultimate sacrifice of self. He had to be willing to let this young upstart who he brought into the church and he invested in. He had to let this man eventually eclipse him in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you something. No man or woman has ever invested in people without making a sacrifice of themselves. And pastor, one of the things that I fear, one of the reasons we're not seeing a a sacrifice and we're not seeing investing in people is because we have become too preoccupied with our own things. That shouldn't surprise us. To the Philippian church, the apostle Paul lamented, all seek their own and not the things which are Jesus Christ's. You know why we have fewer and fewer people on visitation? Because more and more people are seeking their own and not the things which are Jesus Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, I am trying, if I may, to just issue an example and hold up a man in the Word of God. We never read of a sermon that he preached. He did write a book, but it was never included in the canon of Scripture. And yet, this man Barnabas made an immeasurable impact on his generation. And can I just issue you a challenge this evening? This is the Sunday night crowd. These are the faithful people. Usually these are the tithers. I hope you are. If you're not a tither, God help you, you ought to start today. But these are the normally the faithful crowd. And I say to the faithful crowd on a Sunday night, who in northern Michigan can say, I am where I am today because this man, this woman, made a personal investment in me. Who can say that? Who can say, were it not for this person taking the time with me, I would not be where I am today spiritually. And ladies and gentlemen, if you can't think of anyone that could honestly say that, oh, I challenge you tonight. Would you dedicate yourself to the God of heaven and say, Dear Lord, I may not be able to be a musician. I may not be able to play an instrument. I may not be able to preach a sermon or teach a Sunday school class. But by the grace of God, I can make an investment in the lives of those around me. Lord, would you let me be a Barnabas this evening? Some of you, as I've talked to you, have gone on my website. The announcement was made that Evangelist Paul Crow would be preaching the Wild Game Summer Supper. Some of you asked a legitimate question. Who in the world is Evangelist Paul Crow? And so some of you Googled Evangelist Paul Crow. And thank the Lord you got on my website and not all the other impostors out there that go by the name of Paul Crow. And some of you noticed there the story of my dad. My dad's salvation testimony was dramatized by the Pacific Garden Mission of Chicago as part of their Unshackled program. It's available for anyone to listen to. I have all the rights and permission from the Pacific Garden Mission to make it available so long as I do so without charge. So you'll find it on my website. Some of you have listened to it. I want you to picture now it's the 1970s and the hippie culture is very prominent in the United States. And there is a tremendous dichotomy in the United States between those who like traditional American values as they've been held for many years and then the hippie culture and who in their own way want to tear down so much of what has been traditionally held in American culture. And so now there's a, this hippie culture, and this man is caught up in the hippie culture, along with its marijuana and, and its drinking and alcohol. And in process of time, he goes to prison, not once but twice. And there in prison, God reaches down and saves his soul. And so after prison, he gets out, but he's a, he's having a hard time of things. He's a, he's unable to find a job because the uh, the application inevitably says, "Have you ever been convicted of a felony?" Yes. If yes, explain in detail on this one line of text. Well, for this particular gentleman, it was impossible to explain it in detail. It's kind of hard to say, see attached sheet for explanation of the felony. So finally, he got a job with a roofing company, did my dad. And there was... There was a guy that there was a mix up at work, and this guy made a mistake, and dad made a mistake, and so the both customers called the boss, and the boss said, Don't worry about it, both men's jobs will be terminated. He didn't terminate their jobs, he sent this guy here and this guy here. They found out about it. And then, finding out about it, they kind of sort of became friends and in becoming friends they were riding along one day and uh, and the one man was a Christian he wanted to witness to my dad my dad didn't look like a Christian he had no idea that he was a Christian he struggled with a foul mouth he, was, uh, he struggled with the, the smoking habit and uh, he, had, he had to get rid of drinking in prison but uh, there were still several things that that uh, that, that he felt that just weren't, weren't really Christian and he was bothered on the inside about it and uh, it bothered him from day to day and uh, he still looked like one of the, the hippie crowd and so this uh, co-worker turned to my dad and said hey Maybe you could you probably think what we're doing is crazy. He said well, I don't know What do you what are you doing that's crazy? He said well like tonight i'm going to church You probably think that's crazy He said no, I don't think that's crazy He said I, I used to be concerned about the things of god used to read my bible used to pray I, I got confused about some things because some guards gave me some occult literature I, I didn't know which end was up and all of a sudden the man who wanted to witness to him said hey You need to come to church with me tonight and so he walked into the church. I don't know how long it was, but there were two men in that church that noticed this hippie-looking fellow come in the church. I don't know how long it was, but they very soon in that process went to that man. And they put their arms around him and they said, Hey, Bob, why don't you come to our house every morning before work? We'll have a cup of coffee. We'll talk. Now, whenever I give this illustration, there are always problems, okay? Because as I remember these two gentlemen, they were old men, all right? But whenever I define these people as old, inevitably, Brother Aaron, somebody comes to me and says, Well, they weren't old, they are just young whippersnappers. What, can, can we just clear the air? One of them died when he was 96, okay? Wherever the line is between middle-aged and old, can we all agree that somewhere he crossed it? Wherever that line is, okay? 96 years of age. I got to meet Earl Roebuck. Got to meet him. He surrendered his driver's license at the age of 92. But this is what I remember about Earl Roebuck. He was a sweet, godly, Christian gentleman who knew how to pray. Archie Minx died when he was 85 years old. My dad gave testimony. He said, if you got in the vehicle as an atheist, you quickly became a prayer warrior when Archie Minx was behind the wheel. (laughs) He would scare you to death. And he died in a car accident when he was 85. He had a, he had a burden for the elderly. He would go to the nursing home every day of his life. And every day of his life he would go from room to room just praying with those people and ministering the Word of God to them. He just had a burden for them. But those two men just keyed in on this man that had just gotten out of prison. This man who had a record and it was difficult for anybody to give him a job. I don't know what caused them to key in on him. I don't know what, what all was going on in their minds. But I'm going to tell you this. My life was totally transformed by two men that decided to take a convict under their uh, supervision and to pour their lives into him. When I was a young boy, we lived, in a, we lived in a house in South Carolina that did not have a bit of insulation in it at all. I kid you not. It was, it was a cinder block house. It had no insulation in it. And the only heat that we could afford in those days was, uh, was uh, the, uh, the wood stove. We didn't even have a screen on the wood. It wasn't even a stove. It was a fireplace in the early days. And so we would sleep out in front of the fireplace. There was some there was one time when the only thing we could afford to burn was pine, and one of the pine logs snapped and popped, the coal came out onto my sleeping bag and caught it on fire while I was in it. A friend of ours by the name of James Splunt beat me to death. I, I took offense at first. I had no idea that he was saving my life. But that was the life we lived. And in order to get enough wood, my dad had to work with a 20-ounce roof and hatchet and a wedge. That's all we had. And we had to to, to split wood just so that we could keep the pipes from freezing in the winter. But before he would start splitting his wood, he'd turn the light on. Often it would be about 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Light has always awakened me. And so as a little boy, I didn't know any better, I'd crawl out of my sleeping bag. The light was on, it must be time for breakfast, right? Right? And I would go to the edge of the light, and I have vivid memories. of My dad's eyes being closed in prayer as he brought his needs and petitions before the God of heaven. Somehow as a little boy, I knew not to step inside the circle of light. I stayed outside and watched my dad and listened. And there... I began to understand the effects of two elderly gentlemen that poured their lives into a convict fresh out of prison. Because among other things, they taught my dad how to pray. They're both gone now. Oh, have that many have been the times that I wish I could go to them. I wish I could just wrap my arms around their neck and say thank you. Thank you for pouring your life into someone and for investing in my dad. But as I understand the Scripture, they're part of the great crowd of witnesses. And I can't help but think that every time a soul trusts Christ in one of our meetings, maybe a tear comes down Earl Roebuck's face and he says, I'm so glad I made an investment in Bob Crow. And I'm going to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. There are people all over Michigan like my dad was. You look at them right now, looks like they got shot by an automatic weapon that was shooting darts instead of bullets. They've got piercings in places you didn't know we had skin. They've got so many tattoos and some of them are not just normal everyday tattoos. Some of them say vile things and it's awful. But right now, they need somebody who knows and loves God to go to them and begin to invest in them. Is it going to be easy? No, it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. As a matter of fact, who is sufficient for these things as the Apostle Paul said? But I want to challenge you. I want to plead with you. Find somebody in whose life you can pour yourself and invest in them and be a Barnabas and See them go on for God. May God help our Christian experience to be more than just my life and the lives of my immediate family. May we look to those around us and say, Dear God, let me invest in the lives of others. Let me make a difference. Let me be a Barnabas tonight. And join with Him in the greatest investment of all time. Father, Father, Thank you so much for the opportunity that you have given to us to reflect your son by being others oriented. And dear Lord, I pray that you would I pray that you would tug at the heartstrings of your people this evening. Cause them to see the tremendous potential when we invest in people. Child of God, has God spoken to your heart tonight? I wonder, could we stand to our feet, feet, please, this evening? Everyone standing. I'm going to ask the the pianist to begin playing a song of invitation. If God has spoken to your heart, you need to come. I would invite you to do so. Nobody ever invested in people without surrendering, surrendering themselves to the God of heaven first. Because this job is greater than any human being will ever be able to do. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. So if God leads you to come tonight, it would be appropriate for you to come and pray something like this. Holy Spirit, take my members and use them in this business of investing in people. Let me see those people that you want me to key in on. And then, dear Lord, let me invest in people in your power and through your grace. I could go on about the possibilities. Somebody standing right now has a little boy from a broken home that lives not far from you. You could take him into your shop out back and teach him some things. You could teach him how to change a tire. You could tell him how to change the oil. You could tell him when not to check the fluid in the radiator so he doesn't get burned. But by doing something that simple, you could invest in him and you could bring him to Jesus. There's a lady in here that is good working with her hands. You could reach out to those around you and you could begin to, to teach others how to knit and to craft. And by doing so, you can make an investment in their lives and all the possibilities go on and on and on. But I challenge you, come to the God who saved you and invested in you and say, dear God, give me someone in whose life I can invest. song expresses a beautiful desire. I'm going to ask Brother Aaron if he would come and lead us in the song just because of the power of it. Oh, I want to be like Jesus. Brother Aaron, would you come, sir? Page 320 in your handbooks, page three. 3-